We're in the book of Acts, chapter 2. We have heard Peter's sermon to the gathered throng there in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And now this is the story of their response to his sermon. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Pentecost, a season of harvest, a time to gather in those that the Lord has called to himself from the four winds. There were people there from all over the known world, devout men, believers in the expectation of a Messiah and the hope of the Christ that would come. And when they heard Peter's sermon, it was all about Christ. It was all about Jesus. This Jesus, he said over and over, this Jesus, you crucified him, but God raised him up. And the reaction they had when they heard this sermon, laden with scriptural proofs, especially from King David, the one who had typified the coming Messiah King more than anyone else in the Old Testament. When they heard this sermon, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. The authorized translation says they were pricked in their heart. In other words, there was a stabbing in their conscience, they realized that they had crucified Jesus. They realized that the one they had crucified, whom they had thought was a malefactor and well-deserving of death, was actually the one who brings life. And they had attested to the fact that he had risen from the dead and these disciples were bearing witness among them. The eyewitness testimony of a Christ who was alive among them and had ascended back to heaven to the right hand of the Father and had all authority in heaven and earth. And, and, and the sermon hit home. And the Bible says here that they were cut to the heart. Their conscience that's really where a sermon should hit us in the heart. It's good for us to have our 
intellects expanded with good doctrinal and philosophical and polemical and apologetic data. It is good for us to understand the things of the Lord and the teachings of Scripture and dogma and doctrine. I love that stuff. But it doesn't end there. It's not just a lecture. Hearing the preaching of the gospel should somehow stab us. The two-edged sword of the Spirit should cut to the dividing of soul and spirit to the Mara of the matter. And that's what happened here. And it's interesting that so far, most of what had been said by the preacher, Peter, had been proclaimed to them. He had declared, proclaimed, and exclaimed in the indicative, the mighty works of God. What God had done. What God had done in Christ. Who Christ is. He is Christ. He is the anointed one. He's the Lord. He's the sovereign. He's God in the flesh. The Son of God. He's the anointed one. He is at the right hand of the Father ruling with all authority. He had done something. His mighty works was he had lived a life of perfect obedience and thus earned every blessing of the Old Testament covenant. He earned it. We are saved by works. Did you know that? We're saved by the works of Christ and the works of Christ alone. It is his perfect obedience that enabled him to have the merit before the Father of eternal life. And he had died an obedient death. He became obedient even unto the death of the cross. He was a lamb slain. He had laid down his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down. And his death was an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Whereas his perfect obedience brought him eternal life, his being in our place by his death and his resurrection brings us the blessing of eternal life. And all that had been said up till now had been, this is what God has done for you. Christ has come for you. He has fulfilled the promise that was made to you and to your children and to those who are far off. This is what God has done. Really understanding what God has done brings us to a point of where we can only ask one question. Here it is. What shall we do? And it's interesting, Peter gave them two things they could do. Right here in the text, he said, repent and be baptized. And then a little later on, he said, save yourself from this crooked generation. That's really the totality of our salvation. It is trusting 
and depending upon the finished work of Christ. It is repenting of our sins. And repentance is to bring about the force here is of a real change in our life, a complete turnaround, a changing of our whole, not just our thinking, but our whole mindset, which then is the grounds of our behavior. We change it all. Repentance is not just regret. It's not just remorse. It's called repentance to eternal life. It is regret, remorse, but it's contrition. It's a godly sorrow. Cain, Esau, Judas, they all regretted what they did. They all were remorseful for what they had done, but they were not repentant. They did not repent. The message of repentance never, never changes. Every prophet in the Old Testament preached it. The way they would say it in the Old Testament was, turn ye, turn ye, turn around. Leave behind everything that you have done and move toward what God has done for you. Jesus said repentance should be preached in all the world. That's the starting place. To feel the prick of conscience and to have some regrets and some remorse and, and feel bad about ourselves is not repentance. It's the starting place. It's that which God graciously does to show us our sin so that we will abandon our sin and embrace Him. And this is what Peter told him to do. He said, repent and be baptized. Now some have unfortunately thought that there's two commands here. That you repent, but then you must be baptized in order to receive that which God has promised in the gospel. But baptism is always seen in the New Testament as that which does not convey salvation, but confirms salvation. Baptism is that outward sign and seal that God has done an inner work. And baptism is always hand in glove with the gospel. We'll see in just a moment an Old Testament passage where baptism is inextricably bound to the work of God in our hearts. It's an outward sign, a visible sign, water baptism. So the emphasis, of course, of spiritual conveyance is upon repentance. Every one of you, there are no exceptions. There's no other road to God other than a journey along a road that the first step is repentance. Genuine repentance. Repentance for all that we have done. More importantly, I think repentance is for who we are. It's not just what we've done as in sins, but it is a deep contrition that we are in fact sinners. We somehow, some way, by the way we have treated the Lord, we have somehow participated 
in that crucifixion where it is we by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. We have trampled underfoot the blood of Christ. We have gone our own way. We have ignored. We have blasphemed. We have flagrantly sinned and disobeyed him. And not every single solitary act of our sin can be recalled by our human mind, thankfully. But enough of it should get into our system that it makes us sick of our sin. The second thing Peter calls on them to do is to save yourself from this crooked generation. If repentance and faith in Christ speaks to that work that Christ has done that we must receive and believe by faith, embrace and take upon ourselves, then we might call that the work of justification in our lives and on our behalf. But this particular work might be the work of sanctification. We need to save ourselves from this crooked generation. Did you know every preacher in the Old Testament preached to his generation as though they were sinners? <laughs> there never was a righteous generation. Read the Old Testament. Look at the pathetic stories of what happened in the days of Noah. Read the life and study of Israel. How many times they strayed from the Lord in the days of the judges and in the days of the kings. God's people stray. God's people go away. There are many people that never embrace the Lord to start with. Repentance must always be preached. But it is a generational thing. We have in our day and time a genuine crooked generation. The word is perverse. Warped. Our whole generation in America and in the West and around the world even has a perversity to it. A twisting and a warping of God's truth. God's truth about origins. God's truth about His care. God's truth about His existence. God's truth about how we are to behave and respond to Him. Truth is perverted. Justice is perverted. Morality is perverted. Basic nature is perverted. Lies become truth. Evil becomes good. That which is wrong becomes correct. That which used to be abominable and detestable is now acceptable and preferable. We're in a perverse generation. And the essence of our... Listen to me, I'm going to preach for just a minute. The essence of our growth in grace is our capacity to get the world out of and off of us. How far we walk with the Lord 
is the same distance that we get away from the world and the world's way of thinking and the world's way of living and the world's way of acting and the world's value system and the world's worldview. We've got to become different. One of the most discouraging things I read every month are surveys from Barna. Every, every few weeks I get a whole email just loaded with the Barna Research Group, which is an unbelievably outstanding, wonderful polling operation for the church and for the culture. And over and over and over, these statistics and graphs and all this stuff come in there and you scratch your head and you work on it a little, little bit. And, and my whole academic career, the only course I had to repeat was statistics. And it didn't do me any good because I didn't learn any more the second time I took it than I had the first time. But once you get through all the numbers and the graphs and the percentages and the curves and all the rest, you'll see that so much truth in the notion that Christians aren't much different than anybody else. I kind of wish Peter had kind of left this part out of his sermon because it would have been a, a, a good refreshing thing to just contemplate what God has done for us. But when the question was asked, what must we do? Peter didn't stop. The mantle of the Old Testament prophet came over him and knowing the righteousness and the goodness and the love and the glory of God, he denounced that which was in his face. And that is this crooked generation. It says he bore witness and continued to exhort them. <laughs> he went from preaching to meddling. He started talking about the way believers need to go on and live their life after they've repented of their sins, after they've called upon the name of the Lord, after they've received the wonderful promise of personal salvation and eternal life. They've been incorporated into God's people. They know that they have an eternal life they're part of the covenant that God made from the very beginning. All wonderful and delightful things, but they've got to save themselves from this generation, this people. Isaiah looked around and saw those around him with such filthy and unclean mouths. And that didn't only mean cursing, profanity, and vulgarity, but that meant lying that was everything that's done with the tongue, the gossip, the lying, everything you think of. He looked around and saw the unclean lips of his peer group and it made him want to die. He said, woe is me, woe is me. That's what that means. The woes which culminate in demise be upon me for I'm a man of unclean lips. Genuine repentance makes you want to be different. And following through on your repentance makes you try to be different. Give all diligence using every means of grace and every plea to save yourself from being part of this crooked generation. Now I want to conclude with just a delightful twisting of the scripture. <laughs> the word that's used in this text is not the word for circumcision. It's literally the word for stab or to prick. But the word for circumcision 
is the word peritome. It means to cut, tome, and ectome is to cut something out. And peri is around, the perimeter. So to cut around is what the word circumcision means at its root. Listen for a moment to first Moses. Now Moses had given the law and Moses knew that the people could not keep the law and would not keep the law, even though they swore they would keep every word. Moses knew their condition. And beyond just a need to hear the law and then to assert obedience to the law, listen to what Moses says in the, in the new covenant. Not the covenant he made at Horeb, but the covenant that he made at Moab. Listen to Moses preach. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will keep the first commandment. Will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's the promise. God says he's going to circumcise your heart. He's going to go in and cut around your old stony heart, your old hard heart, your old sinful heart, your black heart. And he's going to remove it. And he's going to put in a soft, a heart of flesh, a sensitive heart, a heart that feels the prick of the word of God that moves you to repentance and removes you to faith. Well, let's, let's don't talk about it. Let's just hear what the prophet said. Ezekiel, and listen to the coming together of the notions of baptism and the notions of a new heart and circumcision and the work of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. Listen to this one passage. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and for your abominations on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities. Pentecost was that day when the Spirit came and applied the work of Christ, giving them new hearts so that they were sensitive and they were cut and they were prodded and they were moved. And he says, I will cause you to walk into my statutes, giving them the motivation and the capacity to implement that and to work that out, saving yourself from this crooked generation. Let's bow our heads and conclude this sermon with the Lord's Prayer, as you see there in your order of service together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.